The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So before um, I went away for a month, there was a kind of a question that came up um, in the discussion of one of the sessions we had about delusion. And um, so I thought when I came back that I would start exploring delusion. And I began that exploration last week. Um, and I don't want to continue, can continue it today. Last week I talked about different ways that we experience delusion. And partly, you know, delusion, delusion is one of the three key, what the Buddha called roots of all of our difficulties. Uh, greed, aversion, and delusion are those three roots. And um, greed and aversion are much easier to see. You know, they're, they're relatively easy for us to, to check into. Aversion's probably the easiest one for us to see because it feels so, so unpleasant often. So um, we can see that and we can see the suffering that it begets in our experience when, when aversion is present then greed may not be quite as obviously suffering um, because we think when we get the thing that we want that, I mean, greed sometimes has included in it the sense of anticipation, excitement, the the idea our mind is projecting forward to how great it's going to be when we get that thing. So we're kind of living in this this fantasy of what it's going to be like, and that's pleasant. And so sometimes it's not so easy to see the suffering of greed um, but when we begin as meditators to really look into the experience of greed, feel into it, uh, we see that you know it something feels off. That the very experience of greed has a feeling of dissatisfaction to it. It's the existence of greed that gives us the sense that um, we're not complete. So the. Um, when we start seeing that, we start seeing the suffering of greed itself. Delusion is much more difficult both to see, you know, by its very nature, delusion is difficult to see. And um, it's also, um, you know, maybe a little harder to see how it connects with suffering. So um, I'd like to explore this in a little bit more depth today. I'll just briefly review uh, what I talked about last week, just to give you a little bit of the context. Um, I think of there being kind of three layers of delusion. And last week I talked about the first two. First layer being um, kind of the most obvious delusion, where we're spaced out, not connected, you know, just not really present for what's happening. You know, we're. A, a classic example, you know, you're driving down the freeway and you're, you know, lost in thought and, um, you know, you you get to your destination and then you remember, wow, you know, I don't remember the drive. So that was in a space of not connecting with what was actually happening. There was just not that presence of mind. It can be, we can function in that state sometimes, you know, as in the driving, you know, we kind of get on autopilot. Our, our senses are taking things in and we're responding to the environment, but we're not consciously aware of it. And then there are times when uh, we're not really even responding to the environment. You know, we just kind of go into a zoned out place and somebody might come up to us and say, hey, <laughs> hey, are you there? That's another form, you know, that's another form of that kind of checked out, not connecting kind of delusion. So that's, um, that's kind of the most obvious form of delusion when we're not really connecting with what's happening in the world. The next level down of delusion is when we are connecting with what's happening in the world, but we're connecting through what I might call a filter, um, an idea, a view, an agenda, an opinion. We see our world through um, filters all the time. We, um, these filters are constructed based on our history, based on how our parents treated us, how our classmates treated us, 
based on what we've received, what we've not received, based on the weather, based on all kinds of things. I mean, it's like all the causes and conditions of our lives have come together to create uh, in us certain views. Some of us might have, um, you know, views about what uh, our friends are like or we see we see when they have views about what we're like. I mean, it, that's that's easier to feel in a way when somebody um, you know treats us from a view, and and we think, wait a minute, you know, that's not me. I mean, that may be me in this situation or that situation, but that's not who I am. So we we see that kind of view operating sometimes in other people, but not necessarily in ourselves. This, um, you know, greed and aversion actually function in this way for us. They, uh, they put filters on our experience. We, um, you know, if we're, if we're in an aversive place, for example, if something happens where um, somebody makes us frustrated, or not makes us frustrated, but we get frustrated with something somebody has done, that frustration, depending on how strong it is, may carry over into other situations. I mean, I've seen this, um, like, in my kitchen, you know. I, I find something has happened, and I'm a little bit uh, agitated. Um, and, um, and then I start seeing all these other things that agitate me. It's like I walk into the kitchen, and I'm like, well, that's, that's, an, that's, not a, that's a problem, and that's a problem, and that's a problem. It's like... The agitation, essentially, is a filter that begets more agitation. We start seeing our experience through that filter, and it's like the, the, our minds begin to select out things that correspond with that filter. This is a form of delusion that we don't see that we're seeing through the filter, you know, that we... we um, kind of believe we're taking in reality as it is. And yet, very often we are seeing things through some kind of a filter. Often a filter of aversion or a filter of greed. Um, There are some other more neutral kinds of filters. Um, I talked about one last week where uh, I I had an invasion of Bermuda grass in my garden. And initially, you know, I was trying to pull the Bermuda grass. You know, I was actually pulling it. I was pulling it out piece by piece. (laughs) And um, initially, it was really hard to see. You know, it's like I had to look. It's like, oh, oh, there's Bermuda grass, and pull that out. And then I'd look, oh, oh, there's some more. Okay. And after a while of doing this, it took me a long time to get the Bermuda grass out of my garden, after a while, I would just look down and immediately see the Bermuda grass. It wasn't so hard to see anymore. The mind had created this kind of filter. You know, when I'm doing this, this is what I'm looking for, and the mind could find it really quickly. I think this is partly how this kind of filter functions. I mean, it's a useful thing for us. When we're doing a task, the mind orients to that thing. The mind gets good at selecting that thing out of our environment. So this is, this is another kind of way this filter operates. Now, you know, the, it's not necessarily a problem. In fact, it serves us at times for our minds to function this way. What's a problem for us is when we think we're seeing things completely accurately. I mean, I might, this, is, this didn't happen, but, you know, I'm just coming up with some silly example in this moment. You know, it might be that, um, you know, while I'm um, pulling Bermuda grass, I'm, you know, so focused on the Bermuda grass that I don't see that there are some flowers coming up. You know, that, that there's, a, you know, some shoots of, of um, some bulbs coming up. So it's... it's um, there are things when we're operating under a filter that we, uh, we miss certain things. And the problem for us happens when we believe that we're seeing things completely clearly and we deny, essentially, that things are there because we haven't seen them. Um, 
this actually happens to us a lot. Um, there's a I, I start I didn't tell the story last week, but I will I will tell it this week. It's it's one I've used a lot, so I'll try to tell it in brief. Some of you will be very familiar with this this story. There's an experiment that was done about this kind of looking at things through a filter, looking at things through a perspective, an agenda. And the agenda that these um, the people in the experiment were offered was to look at a video and watch people passing a basketball between people in a white shirt. You know, there's a, teams on the floor and count the number of times the basketball passed between the people in white shirts. Most of the people could do this very well. They got the right answer in terms of how many times the basketball was passed between people. During that video, there had also been something else going on. There had been a guy in a gorilla suit that had walked through the court and had, you know, very deliberately been very obvious in the middle of the court and then walked off. The vast majority of the people did not see this. Now, again, as I said, that's not necessarily a problem because they had this agenda. They were doing a task. So the mind focuses down, and it serves us in a way for the mind to focus down on that. The problem I see here is that when people were showed the video... Again, having been told there was a gorilla, there was no way they could not see the gorilla, and they denied that it was the same video. Many of them said, this cannot be the same video. Not all of them, but but that's, that's the danger in this way that these filters function. You know, that we, we, can, we think at times we are recording things just like cameras and that we are seeing everything. We're rarely actually seeing everything. This kind of selective choosing from an, our environment happens all the time. So the thing to recognize is just how... Um, uh, dynamic our perception is, you know, that it's, that to, to, um, to not believe that we've seen things completely clearly. I mean, to me, this is like, um, you know, this, this really has huge implications for eyewitness testimony, (laughs) you know, it's like people just don't see things when their minds are in a certain state. So, you know, those are kind of, forms of delusion that you know we we get into a state we're doing something we have an agenda we have a view we have an opinion that filters how we take things in so that's a form of delusion there's a kind of a deeper level of delusion Um, this last level of delusion you're not it's not that you're checked out right i mean you're actually very attentive it's just that you're not aware that you're not seeing everything as it is. Those, those forms of, of um, filters are kind of created based on our personal conditioning, based on who we are, based on um, where we lived, who our parents were, how they treated us, what schools we went to, what our friends were like. All of that comes together to create our own personal filters, our own personal ways that we meet the environment. And then there's a deeper layer of filters that seem to come with being human. And this is the kind of the most insidious form of delusion. Um, the um, Buddha talked about there being some basic distortions of reality. That reality... Um, the way the human mind perceives and experiences reality has some basic distortions to it. And these are the basic distortions, he says, that underlie our suffering, that underlie our struggles. These basic distortions are taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is 
unreliable. What is um, unreliable as a place for happiness, as a place to be happy, as a place for happiness. So what's unreliable is taken as being reliable or satisfactory. What's unsatisfactory is taken as being satisfactory. And what is not self is taken as being self. So this... um, I want to explore these a little bit here today. Explore a little bit how these work. Maybe a little bit about how they contribute to our suffering. Part of my purpose in talking about this is to begin to, you know, as we begin to explore in meditation um, and see into some of these delusions, we... uh, we can start to recognize, kind of like we can begin to recognize with the personal filters, the personal agendas, you know, that, okay, I'm in a state of agitation right now. I know that I'm not seeing clearly. You know, that, that's happened to me enough that I know that. Similarly, we, uh, we can begin to recognize, yeah, okay, I, I see that the mind is very subtly taking something to be to be satisfactory here. So just a simple example from, from a, a few days ago. Um, I was going to visit a friend. And, um, you know, I was really, you know, glad to be going to visit this friend. I hadn't seen her in quite a while. And um, we had a lovely lunch together. We spent a couple hours together. And then as I was leaving, as I was driving away, I felt this really subtle letdown. You know, a sense of, oh, that didn't do it for me. <laughs> you know, it's like something leading up to it, just some subtle delusion in my mind had been, you know, it, 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 this kind of thing happens all the time that we, we just subtly think this, this is what's going to make me happy. You know, I'm going to be, well, it made me happy while I was there. You know, and, and that was great. But there was a subtle way, I mean, the letdown showed me that there was a subtle way in which, you know, there was more a put on to that event in terms of my happiness than I had been aware of. So there had been some kind of delusion operating around that. Just in a, in a kind of a, not in a, not in a you know, major way, but it just it revealed itself to me as I saw that subtle letdown. So that's that's um, kind of the way I'd like to explore these today. So seeing what is impermanent is permanent. This um, this happens at kind of some gross levels. Um, some more obvious levels, like, you know, we might, we might, uh, well, no, actually, no, this, this is not even a might. Most of us, most of us have a sense of um, immortality. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's like, we, 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 we know conceptually that we're going to die, but we don't really connect with that truth of our own impermanence, our own mortality. You know, that, that I, see, I see myself go in and out of this, you know, uh, this delusion of, you know, I get in the car on one end of the freeway and my mind puts me at IMC. And I... I don't question that I'm going to get there, you know. I don't question that um, I'm going to survive the 20 minutes down the freeway. You know, it, it, there are large chunks of the way that we live our lives where we don't question whether we're going to, uh, you know, survive the next 20 minutes. You know, and getting on the freeway, that's a very... Um, you know, well-documented place where people don't get there to their destination. So, 
that's one, you know, that's one way that, that, that kind of the, at the grosser level of impermanence, we, we don't take in our own mortality. There are other levels of this, you know, the, um, uh, you know, just the, the belief in our, the permanence of our possessions. Now, we may not believe that they're ultimately permanent, but, you know, we may, we, we may have a sense, yeah, that's going to last at least as long as I'm alive. You know, so my house, for instance, you know, I, back in uh, Massachusetts, there was one point where it occurred to me, you know, I may go back and there may not be a house there. But most of the time, I actually didn't even question you know, it's like my mind created, from time to time I would think about being at home and my mind created the image of home and it would be there. It would, the, the mind would believe in that, that reality. My, the mind would believe in that, kind of that permanence of that experience, of that object. There was one meditation teacher who went away to teach a retreat and came back and her house had burned to the ground. You know, it's like phew, everything, everything was gone. We just don't know, and we don't live in that space. You know, we don't, we don't, uh, it's not, again, it's not necessarily a, um, uh, you know, it, 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 living in that space of knowing impermanence might, from the outside, sound like it would be depressing. You know, it might sound like, well, why would I want to live knowing that I might die in the next 20 minutes? Or why would I want to live thinking about my house burning down? Well, that's kind of going the other way. That's kind of projecting um, almost an annihilation on things. The, the, um, you know, the experience of life, I think, actually becomes more rich when we acknowledge that things change, that we, you know, we don't have that ability to have things be permanent. Things become more immediate. They become more present for us. So there's another level of impermanence that, um, that happens. Our experience actually is radically impermanent. And this is a way, this is a, really a way that delusion operates for us, that, um, you know, we, we kind of navigate the world, and this is where it's very deeply embedded in, in kind of our, um, the way our senses work and the way uh, our mind creates concepts. And again, this is, is very uh, helpful for us in navigating the world. You know, when we, begin to settle more deeply into meditation, we may begin to get a taste of just how rapidly things are changing. We get a taste of the, um, the vibratory nature of experience, at how nothing stays the same even for a split second. So this is a, another... Um, kind of unmasking of that delusion that we normally live our lives in. You know, just the... And we can look at this partly from the direction of, you know, how our senses function. You know, when I put my, put my hands down here, I feel hardness. And I know, you know, that what's happening there is that the nerves are firing and there's this, like, rapid, you know, construction of experience through the the contact of the nerves with this solid object and then it gets created, something gets created in my mind and that there, there may be, and what I've seen in my experiences, there's little gaps between individual moments of those experiences. And so that we, we might just impute impermanence in terms of our experience. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I can see that the, whatever I experience, there cannot be any permanence in what I'm experiencing. But, but that thing is permanent. You know, we might have that kind of view, that the, 
the, you know, this thing. Well, this is actually solid. And then quantum mechanics tells us that no, actually it's mostly space and, you know, it's mostly vibration. You know, that physics tells us that it's just mostly space and vibration. It has to do with how rapidly things are vibrating that creates this experience of hardness. And yet there's also, so there's that kind of thing that, that there's that, that impermanence and we create, our minds create the sense of permanence around it. And then there's other ways that this impermanence can be, it, things, this is a little bit more, um, mm, shows just how much we can construct out of very little information. Um, there's a, uh, there was, I, I think the Exploratorium has moved. I don't know if they still have this exhibit at the Exploratorium, but there was an exhibit at the Exploratorium where uh, I walked into the Exploratorium and there was a, a bunch of bars hanging up on the ceiling and there were flashing lights on those bars. I've told this to some of you, so some of you heard this. And the bars were, I don't know, maybe four or five feet long, you know, they were probably three inches in diameter. They looked like, you know, steel posts. But they had a, a strip on them where there were lights flashing. And there were probably 15 or 20 of these bars ha- hanging up. And they were spaced, I think, maybe four feet apart. And I looked up at that and saw the flashing lights. And I thought, huh, I wonder what that is. Well, I'll have to remember to come back and see if I can figure out why that's up there. And my nephew and I were at the Exploratorium. We were wandering through the Exploratorium and looking at all the exhibits. And at some point, we sat down and had a drink. And um, we were sitting there just kind of looking around. And my nephew kind of looks up and, and he says, It's a school bus! And I look at him and I see where he's looking. And he's looking up at those bars that are flashing lights. And I look and I see yellow flashing lights and a little dot of red here and there. And I said, a school bus? He said, now it's butterflies. <laughs> I look up and I said, what are you talking about? I just see bars with flashing lights on them. And we had to go do something else, but then we came back and I said, okay, I want to look at this. I want to see, what do you mean? And and there was something about um, the way you, like, tracked. If you moved your eye at just the right speed, um, that those bars hanging from the ceiling became a screen that was, you know, five feet long by 30 feet wide. It became like a movie screen upon which things were projected. A school bus driving across the screen. Butterflies flying across the screen. Words written that you could read. On the side of the school bus was written the name of the district. I could read the name of the school district. Now, this was, this was quite amazing to me to see just how... I mean, my understanding of how it works, it's kind of like there's a little slit of, you know, you're seeing a little slit of the, the light, and then, um, you know, that it, it time, it's timed to move as if it's moving across space to the next light, to the next bar, and you're just seeing what's in that slit. But the, the, the eye persists the, uh, the image. The eye has this capacity to persist the image on that bar and create the uh, illusion of that screen. So this is a way that our senses work, you know, to create this illusion of solidity, of reality. I mean, that reality wasn't there. There was not a school bus driving across the ceiling. But it looked like there was a screen. There wasn't even a screen up there with a projection of a school bus. But it sure looked like it. 
when I could track it in that way. So, you know, this is, this is a way that our senses work and deceive us. You know, they, they, they fool us. Now, again, it's not a problem that our senses work this way. What's a problem is when we believe our senses. What's a problem is when we take what's coming in and processed. I mean, this has a lot to do with concepts, actually. You know, it has a lot to do with how our mind creates what's, what, we, what we perceive. We take our concepts to be the reality. And that's, that's the problem is that we don't recognize that what we are responding to are concepts, not reality. And this goes to so many levels in our experience. So I want to um, keep going, but I also want to stop and see if there's any, any questions here, uh, have a little bit of a conversation. Yeah, Gail, there's a mic there. Um, I'm thinking of um, a conversation that I had with my husband this morning and and just um, listening for delusion here. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I've got this image in my mind of him and another image of me as being entities. And I guess that in itself is is delusion, right? Um, and then, and then also, I have uh, concepts of what he was like, and my reaction to that, which involves aversion at the moment, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, all of that is uh, just playing across this parent screen in in our mind, in my mind. Uh, and and yet it doesn't seem easy to just chase away. <laughs> yes. Uh, so and that's exactly where delusion meets suffering. You know that um, what's actually going on is that there are. I mean, the non-delusion of that experience is that there are images coming up in your mind. There are emotions coming up in your body. Um, those, that's what's happening in the moment. The, the way the mind deals with it is it kind of believes it, it thinks it needs to do something with it, it thinks, um, and, and sometimes we do. I mean, you know, I, I have to be careful here because often, um, um, you know, the, our, our, our minds are created, our minds are constructed, have evolved, I'll say, have evolved to protect this organism. And so there are times when, you know, things are happening in our mind and body and we do need to take action. So this is not just about not taking action, but the, the delusion of our minds is such that it makes us believe we need to take action on many things that we don't need to take action on. So, yes, it is, it is challenging. So we get hooked. We get hooked by those. We, we believe in the reality of needing to do something. And very often it comes back to the, the delusion around taking what is not self to be self. You know, it's like that, that kind of core, that's I think the deepest delusion, the core delusion of I need to protect, defend myself. Um, and again, you know, our system is kind of designed to protect, defend it. The, the system is designed to protect to take care of itself. The delusion comes in the, the whole construct that we have around um, this entity, you know, this, this being, you know, that I think I am something. And that belief, that entity belief, uh, self-belief, then creates the view, creates this filter that we then ha- have this idea of, oh, I need to do this, I need to get that, I need to, in order to feel safe, I need to have X, Y, and Z. And we don't actually recognize that all of, a lot of that, in order to feel safe, I need to have X, Y, and Z, is simply conditioned 
phenomenon as opposed to, you know, actuality. You know, in order to feel safe right now, I need to run because, well, maybe not run. I was thinking of a lion, you know. I was thinking of a lion there. You know, if you run and there's the lion, you tend to get chased. But... Yes. <laughs> so, you know, so I need to freeze, perhaps, you know. So, you know, the, uh, the, that's more of a you know, kind of automatic thing. I mean, one time I saw, I was walking in du- at dusk at, at uh, a retreat center, and I saw a crack on the sidewalk. And I stepped towards the crack, and the crack turned into a coil and began rattling. It was a rattlesnake. And my body basically froze. I mean, I just kind of watched this. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I was actually quite present and I didn't think, oh my God, it's a rattlesnake, what am I supposed to do? It's like my body froze and my body, I just watched it go slowly back away. It's like, wow, look at what the body does when it sees a rattlesnake. <laughs> you know, so without having that agenda or view of, oh, I need to protect myself, the system did its thing. You know, without there needing to be an Andrea that needed to be protected. The system did its thing. So what, but what seems to happen for us is that our idea of uh, me needing to protect myself kind of um, is an overlay, is a filter that we have. And, uh, you know, we may, we may think we need to protect ourselves from, you know, it, it, it's like the, the, the difference between wants and needs here is kind of interesting to explore. You know, like, I need to be seen. Um, that, you know, it's like I don't feel okay unless somebody reflects me. And that was actually something I saw on a, on a very early, my very first um, weekend meditation retreat. I was unprepared for the silence, and I had a roommate. The fact that I could not check in with my roommate and talk to her, make eye contact with her, find out how is she feeling about me, was really uncomfortable. And this was a good lesson for me, actually. I began to see just how much of my sense of self, my sense of who I was, depended on what I read from other people. So I've gotten much more comfortable with just, you know, just like whatever people are, are reading of me, it's more, oh, okay, that's... I don't know, actually, what they're reading of me. I realized also that it was a huge projection of what I thought people were reading of me. So, you know, this, this sense of self creates these filters through which we... Um, believe we have to do and the sense of self is actually a lot of where the greed the aversion comes from you know the the sense of self is where i need to have this thing in order to feel okay i need to get rid of this thing in order to feel okay i um i i see this too you know just i can see the subtle shift and this is a this is an important piece actually that we begin to see as we explore delusion as we explore our experience and begin to recognize um the, those delusions we begin to recognize oh i'm taking things through this perspective i'm seeing things through the perspective of this is what i need um as we begin to unmask those we can start to see when we're caught by delusion. So, for example, um, again, another pretty simple example, something I've seen pretty recently. Um, I had a, a situation not long ago where there's a lot of bodily unpleasant experience. Um, and that bodily unpleasant experience created an agitation in the mind of, I need to do something about this. There was fear. There was a little anxiety around that. And um, there wasn't anything at that moment that I could do about it. And I just began recognizing, okay, well, it's like this right now. You know? And the, the, the sense of me needing to do something about it, just drop away for 
moments at a time. And when that happened, it was just sensation. You know, the sensation was, you know, it was strong sensation. It wasn't even that unpleasant when I let go of the idea that there was a problem. You know, when the mind let go of that sense of self being threatened by sensations in the body. It was just sensations. And there was a, a, a radical shift in the, in the entirety of the experience. There was a sense of the, 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 there was a relaxation around the experience. It wasn't a problem anymore. So that was a case where I could see, you know, kind of coming and going because I could see the mind get hooked back into that. I need to do something about this. And there it would be again, you know, the sense of self. And then the mind could be just with, oh, just the sensations. And I would, it, would, it would kind of, that sense of me needing to do something would drop away. And it would just be sensation. Much um, uh, more restful place to be when, you know, I didn't have control at that moment. There was nothing I could do about it anyway. So that, you know, that's, that's something that... Um, um, you know, take some discernment in a way. When is it time to act? When is it time to just recognize, yeah, there's no control right now. So we do have some measure of control. It's not, it's not a, an entity that has control. It's a set of processes that are unfolding that has choice, that can be made based on input. I mean, our, our whole uh, system works this way also, that you know, inputs come in and the, uh, the mind knows how to uh, create scenarios into the future and choose between them and make choices. It all unfolds as a process. And we impute this identity, this sense of self, after the fact. And then we feel like we have to protect, defend that creation. You know, the sense of self is something that is happening in us, but it's a concept. It's a concept. Believing, again, believing that concept to be real is where a lot of our suffering comes from. So that was a little bit more of a... <laughs> yeah, Arthur. There's a mic there. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's the process becomes a concept. It begins objectification. You know, that's another w- word for reification. Yeah. yeah the me, the I is you know uh, the heart beats, the uh, the mind thinks, the feet walk, the muscles pull and contract, and, and who knows what's doing it all. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's, that's precisely the delusion of self, that we mistake that process for an object. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Carla. Oh, is that one? Okay. Well, I think I said, I said the... Just to add to okay. that, because I, I, being a visual kind of person, I, I'm back to, into the exploratory where you uh-huh. were. And... and um, and so I would be the, like your nephew going, well, there's a, you know, because I tend to do that kind of with constellations. But I, I guess part of me is thinking that might be a healthy, I mean, that, that we're not a, attached to, say that was a self or someone who ever decided that um, Canis Major looked like a, looked like a, a dog, you know, that um, I know you've done expanded awareness kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, in the whole thing of Gestalt therapy is seeing the the whole mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I, I guess my mind's going into that whole thing about well, what if it's you know, looking at the self as, you know, in this way. One minute it could look like a bus. One minute it could. Look like, <laughs> um, maybe it was a good exercise for that for that sort of thing. So I think you're. I think if what you're pointing to is the sense of, um, um, I mean, I think 
part of the reason why these particular delusions are so deep is because they do serve us. You know, that, that it helps us actually to feel like we have choice and control in terms of survival. You know, it, it helps us to have the sense of permanence in our world. I mean, if we walked around in a vibratory, you know, nebulous field, you know, I don't know how long we would be here for. So, so I think you're, that these, these, these delusions are touch at something that is helpful. And the, the question becomes recognizing, um, you know, that it's a process that it, that it um, is perhaps a helpful process. It's not like we're trying to stop the process, mm-hmm. not, not try to stop the sense of, yeah, okay, now it's like a bus, or mm-hmm. now, it's like a, you know, now it's like a 40-year-old, now it's like a 2-year-old, you know. Yeah. Um, but to recognize that it is not the thing. Right, and, yeah. I, and I think that's it, because and I, 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 I sense that there's a, a connection between greed and delusion in, in this tendency to solidify. I'm going to make this all mine, this thing I can pick up like a pot of gold. Uh-huh. And, um, and that's when it gets all, all uncomfortable. Yeah, I think greed brings in all of these. You know, it's like greed brings in, you know, if, if we, we understood that things were impermanent, you know, you know that, that, that actually happens as we begin to recognize how impermanent things are. You know, greed just begins to not even go there. You know, um, because it recognizes, you know, the other piece of greed is that the greed is looking for happiness. Greed is looking for that reliability. And the, one of the main delusions of greed is this is the one. <laughs> this is the one that's going to be reliable. <laughs> you know, so, so that's... That's the delusion of greed, that, that, it's, that it's going to find its thing. And the other part of the delusion of greed is that we believe that it's right. You know, we believe that if we don't get that thing, that unhappiness is going to follow. We don't, rec- I mean, this is, this is one of the brilliant pieces of what the Buddha had to say. It's like, you know, okay, greed, greed is a phenomenon, it's impermanent. What happens when greed ends? You know, you don't get the thing, but greed ends. What happens? You know, that's a, that's a different perspective on greed. You know, it's, it's like greed deludes us into believing it has to be satisfied. Whereas when we actually watch greed disappear, we find a kind of a deeper satisfaction in the release from that vice grip of needing. And then greed also functions from this perspective of I. You know, it's like, I'm the one that needs. I need to be affirmed. I need to prove that I'm okay. I need to show that I can do this thing to be a good person or prove to myself that I, you know, I'm worthy of love or whatever. It's like that, that the motivations of self kind of underlie a lot of the movements of greed and aversion. So, yeah, the movement of greed really, I think, touches into all of these delusions. And, in fact, you know, greed and aversion would not exist without delusion. You know, that uh, greed and aversion can create delusion. You know, we can have an aversive filter on our mind, like I was talking about earlier, you know, walking into my kitchen when I'm agitated and seeing all these other things that agitate me, that's a, a kind of a filter of aversion that is a delusion. So it, it kind of creates a delusion. But the aversion itself is rooted in delusion. So that greed and aversion um, won't exist without that delusion. So really the uprooting of delusion is the core training that uh, this, this practice begins to take us towards. And it's through essentially these three insights, you know, the, the, the insights into impermanence, unreliability, and not self, 
that begin to free us from this delusion. And we, um, you know, we, we start to see, I think I kind of touched on this before, we, we go into places where a delusion falls away. But then the delusion comes back. You know, that, that you know, there's sometimes with insights that really take us into a place of clearly seeing, of clearly knowing what's happening. Um, where it's like so obvious. You know, the, the, the experience of seeing clearly without filters seems so obvious. How could, I, how could I not see this? How could I not see that the mind is creating all this suffering? How could I not see this? And then conditions change, and we can't see that anymore. So there's a moment or two or a few moments perhaps where delusion falls away and it's really clear to us that things are impermanent, that our minds are the ones that are leaping onto things and creating our own suffering. So we have a few moments of clarity, of non-delusion, and then the delusion comes back. When, when, we, um, when the delusion comes back, we, that, at that point... We know we're operating from delusion because we've seen things from the non-deluded perspective. And so we can begin to recognize delusion operating. Like I could with that example of seeing how the self came in and you know, kind of jarred up the bodily experience and then the feeling of self fell away and it's like, no problem. There it's back, there it's gone, it's back, it's gone. So you can begin to see, you know, oh, operating with this delusion. So this begins to help us to see the delusion. It's almost like the delusion has to fall away and come back before we can really begin to see it. And the thank goodness, the practice helps, helps that to happen. You know, that when we bring our attention to our experience, observe our experience, the Buddha talked about, in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. Train yourself in this way. You know, this practice of meeting experience moment to moment with mindfulness begins to create the conditions for delusion to fall away from time to time. And then it comes back, but then we can, then we can recognize it again. In the recognition of it, we don't buy into it quite as much. We don't have that belief in it quite as much. So it's time to stop. So thank you for your attention.